Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. I'm Dr. Carolyn Lam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. How common is perioperative myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery? And what is its significance? A very important question and a very important feature discussion coming right up after these summaries. Our first original paper this week tells us that risk assessment using only non-laboratory-based risk factors may be a useful alternative in the absence of information on lipids in predicting adolescents at risk of developing preclinical atherosclerosis. First and corresponding author Dr. Koskinen from University of Turku, Finland, and colleagues studied almost 2,900 participants aged 12 to 18 years from four longitudinal cohort studies from the United States, Australia, and Finland, and followed these adolescents into adulthood when carotid intima media thickness was measured a mean follow-up of 23 years later. Non-laboratory-based risk factors such as age, blood pressure, body mass index, and lipids measured in adolescents independently predicted high carotid intima media thickness in young adulthood. The addition of lipid measurements to these traditional clinic-based risk factor assessments provided a statistically significant but clinically modest improvement on adolescent prediction of high carotid intima media thickness in adulthood. The next study demonstrates the feasibility of large-scale aptamer multiplexing at a level that has not previously been reported and with sample throughput that greatly exceeds other existing proteomic methods. Now, like antibodies, DNA aptamers can be generated as affinity reagents for proteins. Emerging data suggests that they can be used to measure blood protein levels in clinical cohorts However, the technology has to date remained in its infancy. In today's study, co-first authors Dr. Jacob and Ngo, co-corresponding authors Dr. Jennings and Gertsten from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, tested the scalability of a highly multiplexed expanded proteomic technique that uses single-stranded DNA aptamers to assay human proteins with a markedly expanded platform containing approximately 5,000 aptamers targeting a far broader range of analytes than previously examined using this technology. They applied the platform to a cohort of individuals undergoing septal alcohol ablation for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, using this as a human model of planned myocardial injury. Now, in addition to confirming findings from prior studies, they identified nearly 150 additional putative markers of myocardial injury. Thus, these findings suggest that the expanded aptamer-based proteomic platform may provide a unique opportunity for biomarker and pathway discovery following myocardial injury. The next study addresses the question of potential long-term effects of low LDL cholesterol on neurocognitive impairment and decline. This has been a concern with pharmacologic PCSK9 inhibition. First author Dr. Mefford, corresponding author Dr. Levitan from University of Alabama at Birmingham, investigated the association between PCSK9 loss of function variance and neurocognitive impairment and decline in the REGARDS study. 
in this general population sample of African American adults, they found no association between PCSK9 loss of function variants and neurocognitive impairment or longitudinal neurocognitive decline. There was also no association between lower LDL cholesterol levels and neurocognitive impairment or decline during follow-up. This study therefore provides evidence in a contemporary population that PCSK9 loss of function variants and resulting lifelong exposure to low LDL cholesterol levels are not associated with neurocognitive impairment or decline. The final study explores long-term outcomes in patients with type 2 myocardial infarction and injury. First and corresponding author Dr. Chapman from University of Edinburgh and his colleagues identified more than 2000 consecutive patients with elevated cardiac troponin I concentrations at a tertiary cardiac center. All diagnoses were adjudicated as per the universal definition of myocardial infarction. They found that at 5 years, all-cause death rates were higher in those with type 2 myocardial infarction or injury compared with type 1. Although the majority of excess deaths in those with type 2 myocardial infarction or injury were due to non-cardiovascular causes, the observed crude major adverse cardiovascular events or MACE rates were similar between groups. Coronary heart disease was an independent predictor of MACE in those with type 2 myocardial infarction or injury. Thus, despite an excess in non-cardiovascular death, patients with type 2 myocardial infarction or injury have a similar crude rate of major adverse cardiovascular events to those with type 1 myocardial infarction. Identifying underlying coronary heart disease in this vulnerable population may help target therapies that could modify future risk. That wraps it up for our summaries. Now for our feature discussion. So I'm going to go back to my first question on this podcast. How common is perioperative myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, and what is its significance? Well, to give us some answer, I am delighted to have the first and corresponding author of today's feature paper, Dr. Christian Muller from University of Basel in Switzerland, and we also have Dr. Thorborn Omland, and he is associate editor from University of Oslo in Norway. Now, in case you're having déjà vu, you are right. I have had these gentlemen on this podcast before, and they were so successful, I had to call them back. So, welcome, welcome Tobjorn and Christian. Thank you for coming back again. Christian, congratulations on another beautiful paper. Could you tell us the highlights of what you did and what you found, but this time in particular, telling us the novel aspects in view of the previously published vision study that was just published last year. Maybe you could just point out some of the differences. The topic is about an interdisciplinary topic and something i think that is so important for us as cardiologists to get involved in with much more detail in the future so we are aware of acute myocardial infarction spontaneous acute myocardial infarction an event that we have studied extensively for decades and for which i think we have a thorough understanding of its pathophysiology and we have excellent treatment A completely novel entity 
is perioperative myocardial injury. So cardiomyocytes that die in the context of non-cardiac surgery. And it's something that we as cardiologists should be really focused on because it's likely the most important contributor to death in the perioperative period. So the death rate among non-cardiac surgery, despite all improvements in anesthesia and surgery, remains remarkably high, between 1% and 4% within 30 days, depending on patient characteristics and surgical characteristics. And it seems from our current understanding that the heart really plays a major role in a rather high percentage of these deaths. So what is new in our study? So overall, our study took advantage of insights gained from the first phase of the vision study in that it has been documented that these perioperative myocardial injuries very commonly occur without the patient or we as physicians getting aware of it, either because the patient is still having anesthesia and or analgetics or because he may have symptoms that are atypical. So we can only reliably detect this event if we screen an appropriate population. And that's what we have done. So, And I think the criteria were patients at high risk of cardiovascular complications defined as an age of 65 or higher or having pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So this is the first major difference to vision in which also uh, much younger patients were enrolled. So that's perhaps the most important differentiator. So we had an open-label screening. So the, the screening was part of clinical routine, and it was fine-tuned to patients of whom we thought they have a reasonable high risk of developing this complication. And your main findings, because they were striking. As our most important finding, we were able to report the incidence. So how many patients actually have a relevant amount of cardiomyocytes dying during the operation. And it was one out of seven patients entering our study. So an incredible high incidence of this complication. And that this complication not only is a surrogate endpoint that we shouldn't care too much, was highlighted again in full agreement with vision is that if patients develop this complication, so perioperative myocardial injury, irrespective of whether they have any symptoms or typical ischemic symptoms, and again, only a small minority had the risk of dying both within 30 days as well as within one year was substantially increased. Christian, before you go on, could you just please clarify, how did you define perioperative myocardial injury in this case? And was it the same as the definition used in vision? The perioperative myocardial injury concept, initially in vision, it was defined as detecting an elevated troponin just after a non-cardiac surgery. And why this was perhaps an appropriate definition at the time when we were still using very poorly sensitive troponin assays, it definitely is no longer appropriate nowadays because it's obvious that particularly elderly patients may have chronic elevations in high-sensitive troponin, usually mild elevations, 
due to a variety of disorders. And then Topion, of course, did important studies for us to understand that this is uh, mild elevations in troponin is quite common in patients with heart failure, with chronic coronary artery disease or hypertensive heart disease, whatever. So if we would detect or start detecting a slightly elevated troponin only after an operation, we would never know whether this is something related to the operation itself or whether it perhaps has already been around for months and weeks and just represents the chronic condition. So the novel concept is that we have to identify an acute rise in troponin, a dynamic kinetic, so just like it's requested for the universal definition of myocardial infarction also for spontaneous events. So we requested in this study an increase from the concentration prior to surgery of at least 14 nanograms per liter of high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T. Right. Wow, what a great study. So systematic. So all patients basically had readings before and after surgery. You know, I've got so many questions, but I really, since you mentioned Tobiorn, I really, really would like to ask his perspective on what you think was the most striking parts of it. And any questions you may have from Christian? First, I would like to say that this is a very impressive study with some very important results in a neglected area of medicine, really. So there are several very strong points with this study, and I think that they were able to, in such a large population, both have pre-operative and post-operative, and was able to calculate the delta. And the importance of that was a very strong part of the study because it showed that as Christian alluded to, the baseline level did carry some prognostic information, but there was also important additional information from the serial measurements. So that's maybe one of the most important findings, I think. Then there's the question, how should we use these data? So my question to Christian is actually, how will screening for subclinical myocardial injury affect clinical practice? Will it lead to clinical decisions or interventions that will improve outcome, or will it just result in unnecessary testing? Very good, important point, Tobian, and I think you're absolutely right in indicating so that I think we are just beginning to understand also the pathophysiology or that behind the events that we can now capture and detect really rather simple and precisely with troponin screening. So I think it's important that we highlight that the pathophysiology behind this event differs from patient to patient. So there are some patients who clearly have a type 1 myocardial infarction as the cause of myocardial injury. Very likely they are the minority in this setting. Likely the majority to have a kind of a type 2 myocardial infarction pathophysiology with a imbalance between supply and demand. And again, in these patients, of course, uh, the management needs to be to identify the trigger and to correct the trigger as rapidly as possible. And it can be that detecting myocardial injury by the rise in troponin is the first indication that there is a problem ongoing. In other patients, kind of the pathophysiological derangement might have already been aware to the physicians. If it's a type 1 myocardial infarction, then obviously, very likely, the same therapy will be beneficial to these patients as we would apply in spontaneous myocardial infarction. But it's very important, and I'm glad you alluded to that. It's a different, but it's a, a rather wide variety of patient settings that are summarized under the term 
palpative myocardial injury. And the consequences likely will have to be individualized to really ensure that we do something good for the patient. And, and if I may, I, I would like to ask you and, and Carolyn for your thoughts about the most appropriate wording. So the current wording that we use, of course, it has to be in any scientific discussion, a very conservative one, and it's perioperative myocardial injury. And it's important that, in fact, there are some entities where likely injury is the right one. So patients who have this injury related to severe sepsis or to related to a stroke or pulmonary embolism. However, it's very likely that in the vast, vast majority of patients, the term perioperative myocardial infarction would be appropriate. And I think it's so important to be aware of the implication that this perhaps on first sight small difference might have. As long as we keep using the term injury, cardiologists will not really feel the same need to be involved and the same need to really take care of these patients as compared to the use of myocardial infarction. So I think it's a balance between scientific accuracy, but also the need to create awareness. So I feel that if cautiously applied, we do more good if we would more liberally use myocardial infarction in, in this context. So would you agree with this suggestion? I think injury is at least better than what we used to say, a leak. You know, we used to just say, oh, it's just a troponin leak, you know. So at least we're saying injury, recognizing that there is damage done. I just want to highlight that in your paper, something that really struck me was that these patients with perioperative myocardial injury or infarction indeed did as badly as those who did or did not fulfill myocardial infarction criteria. So that kind of supports what you are suggesting. I did get that right, right, in your paper? Absolutely. And I think for spontaneous myocardial infarction, it's so clearly that the criteria defined in the universal definition are mandatory. There's nothing to discuss about. But we cannot criticize a patient who is undergoing general anesthesia that he doesn't feel chest pain. And therefore, we deny him the appropriate word of the event. So I think it's just important that we clearly highlight that it really can be the same event and just without symptoms, but not due to anything else, but because he's undergoing anesthesia. Very good point. You know, I would really like, though, to go back to Tobjorn's point, because I think that skeptics are going to say we've created a problem that we don't know how to solve or that we don't know how to treat. Do you know what I mean? So we're detecting all these things because now we have all these essays. Patients are asymptomatic. And then we really don't know whether it's modifiable, we don't know what to do to improve outcomes. So could I ask both your expert thoughts on what the future should hold? What is next steps? Because I see a gap. Yes, that's, of course, a key question. So I think we need to be innovative and patient because what we really need is clinical trials, perhaps randomized clinical trials, looking into different strategies. But of course, that's also challenging because, as uh, Christian told us, the pathophysiology among this group of patients with perioperative myocardial injury differs. So what will be appropriate for one patient may not be the appropriate therapy for the next patient. So I think his suggestion of an individualized approach is the best thing we can say at this moment. 
while we are waiting data from future clinical trials. Well, I fully agree with, with Topian. I mean, also the kind of what you said, I mean, we will be criticized and some people will argue could say it's irrelevant. Why do you measure this? And you don't want to hear it. You don't want to see it. But I think it's important to remember, I mean, the starting point for us as cardiologists to get involved is death. It's death within 30 days after non-cardiac surgery in a patient who was fit, relatively fit otherwise, who underwent a surgery that was not a very high-risk surgery from which you would expect a certain percentage of patients to die. So that's the starting point. And again, of course, peripheral myocardial infarction is not the only contributor to peripheral death, but it seems, in addition to severe sepsis, to be the second commonest and most important one. And so I think it's really, really important to first as a really as a first important thing to increase the awareness of this problem and to encourage our colleagues to start doing um, research efforts so that we get smarter in identifying the underlying pathophysiology in these infarcts or injuries because only once we understand or have a reasonable understanding what is the mechanism we will be smart enough to select the most appropriate therapies for any intervention study. Wow, what a wonderful note to end this podcast on. Words of wisdom as always from both of you, Christian and Tobjorn. See, listeners, didn't I tell you this was going to be a great podcast? Don't forget to tune in again next week. 